listeners, and welcome to Cat's Cradle, the show within a show where we talk about TTRPG design and the show and movies we watched one time. Don't worry about it. This week, it is the 16th Cat's Cradle, which means it's finally time to talk about what the show is about. Sort of Symphonies, the show you were watching? That one. Listening to? That show. That show. The one we've been doing. Your favorite show. Yeah. And that is to say, playtesting. I am in the process of putting together kind of a second edition of Heroic Chord, as we've discussed a couple times. And a lot of that was due to playtesting feedback. As Dylan has mentioned, Dylan's here, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, they are working on their own system and about to embark on the playtesting phase. Nick and I have done playtesting before. Kathleen's my favorite playtester. We're good. We don't have a Kirsten. That's all right. That happens sometimes, but she's okay. We'll tell her what she missed. Yeah, don't be worried. She's fine. So what is playtesting, you might ask? Well, it's when you test a game by playing it. Thank you for asking. It's not always strictly necessary, especially in like small story games, but I've always done it. It's something I enjoy doing, and it's what this podcast is about. Sort of Symphonies is a playtest campaign for Heroic Chord, after all. So uh, anytime you're building kind of a big or intricate game system, it's a good idea to sit down with some people and play it just to, I mean, see the difference between what you put on paper and what the players interpret, as well as see how things move when they're actually in action. See the way the gears mesh, as you were. I would describe playtesting as a similar process to having a second read of something that you've written or bouncing ideas, something off of like a piece of art that you've completed before you're going to take it to a second round for redraws. It's kind of a similar process. The things that you know about a story or a piece of music or a game system in this case um, are not the things that other people know. And it's really easy to let your own biases kind of overshadow what you're thinking about things. And so having fresh eyes on any piece of work that you are doing can be critical. Hmm. Yeah, playtesting is, it's editing. It's one of those things that you kind of have to do it. But on the plus side, most playtesting is actually pretty fun. Because, hey, you get to play the thing that you made, and that's cool. And this isn't blind playtesting, at least sort of symphonies isn't. Because for blind playtesting, you just kind of hand someone else the game and say, run this game and report back to me. And I need to do that with somebody. Maybe I'll bully one of our network siblings into playing it (laughs) without me. But this is the opposite of that, where you sit down with your group and... Just see what happens with the things that you put on paper. And anybody who looked at the heroic chord rules at the beginning of Sword of Symphonies and is listening currently can intuit that a lot of things change over the course of playtesting. In our case, entire systems. (laughs) Multiple of them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get really big changes and that's good. I guess one of the first things when you go into playtesting is you can't be married to any sort of idea too much. Not to say that you have to throw anything out if people don't like it, but you do need to be really flexible when you get into playtesting because there's going to be some ideas that you really like that 
either aren't going to come across well or that people just aren't going to connect to. And knowing when to say, okay, this isn't working and when to say, this is a part of the game that I want to keep is important. Like, and really the only way you're going to get into that or figure that out is by doing play testing. And also sometimes ideas that you had and liked but didn't quite work out come back in another way. The current combat encounter system, I think, is very much like the survival pool that we had at the beginning of the playtest. Mm. But it's sort of repurposed into a different context with a little bit more structure in some ways, and it works a lot better. Yeah. That's a change born of playtesting because I found that survival pools, as they were in the original rules, were absolutely miserable for a GM. <laughs> they were not fun. I did not enjoy them. And that's the other thing about playtesting hands-on is that sometimes there are things in your game that sounded like a really good idea when you were putting them down to paper. But then when the time comes to actually turn the wheels, it's different. It's different than you thought. <laughs> it's different and bad. Mm-hmm. So as the uh, the person who is not yet experienced with playtesting, but is pretty deep into the process of finalizing a first build of a game, the gist of what I'm kind of getting from you guys, having experienced it, is that I think the first thing that I kind of picked up on was that being the person creating a game gives you an intimate knowledge of it that you can't expect or put upon other people. And so, and this is something I've been thinking about recently since I have yet to develop a GM toolkit for my game, primarily just a player toolkit and realizing that it's all well and good to run a game and test for the player side of things. But until you can actually remove yourself from the equation, you'll never truly know how accessible the game is for people who aren't you since you made it and understand it fully uh, in and out. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I'm kind of interested in, because I haven't actually run a play test yet, I'm a little intimidated by it. I'm I'm a little scared to kind of see how it goes. Uh, it's easy to feel kind of um, protective of something you've made and opening it up to criticism is always a little scary. And I'm excited on one hand to see what people's feedback is and what kind of things the players are able to do with the system as I've made it. But it's also a little scary because I have this sort of perception of what the game rules are supposed to evoke and mean. And if I find out that, you know, none of it comes across that way, that's a lot of reworking to have to be uh, done. I, I guess I have a, <laughs> a question at the heart of it is, has there been anything that you guys have experienced being like really attached to or kind of viewed in a certain light that once put into the hands of the players, completely recontextualized that, uh, that mechanic and kind of took your very dreamy idea of it and kind of forced you to acknowledge that it wasn't as a, it wasn't doing what you thought it would. Oh yeah. Uh, yes, actually. And I think the big one is this, and I, I ran across this very quickly and Kat was the first one who really pointed it out to me because she wasn't the one abusing it was, uh, when I ran my tabletop RPG, oh, this was a few years ago. Um, I'm back to working on it. But when I first ran it, one of the classes you could be was basically a shaman and their gimmick was they would eat mushrooms and they would summon spirits and they completely broke the action economy of the game and were incredibly overpowered. Yep. And 
while I really liked the idea of this character who, uh, when they were a bug, so they were nicknamed Druggy Buggy by Cat, and I really, <laughs> I, love I really liked the flavor of these like beetle shamans who ate these, you know, magic mushrooms essentially, and used that to commune with nature spirits, and they would summon you know little like swamp friends, and it was really cool, and I loved the flavor, and they were just unbelievably powerful because they turned into like three or four people and you could just, you could build them a specific way where they could solo encounters. No problem because they were five people. Yeah. Um, actually heroic chords, initial magic system. I had to tear apart. And this actually was something that I've been meaning to say since, since you mentioned being anxious about everybody's feedback is that not everybody's feedback comes in terms of concrete criticism. A lot of the feedback you receive when you're playtesting is observed behaviors. Um, what happened was initially for Heroic Court to cast a spell, you needed to have two people cast the spell and you used one word from one person's list and one word from the other person's list. And what I wanted was for this to feel very collaborative. But what ended up happening was people would just say, hey, Kirsten, I need this word from your list. And it wasn't like it wasn't collaborative. It was just one player telling the other player what to do all the time. Gotcha. So it was more like looking across the table like, hey, give me your stuff. I need it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was not the vibe I was going for. That wasn't how I wanted the magic to play. So I ended up rebuilding it and just taking it off co-op almost entirely, with the exception of chords. Interesting. And nobody told me that this was happening, but I observed it during play. And I was like, well, this is not the vibe I need. So. Huh. Something about game design is that you are designing systems. Whenever you're designing a system, it is going to push people toward certain behaviors. And one of the biggest things that you get out of observing playtests or observing systems tests or building a piece of software and seeing it run is you see what kind of outcomes actually fall out of these rules that you've made. Hmm. So sometimes you have things that work in different ways than you are. Like maybe all of a sudden you end up with play that's way more conservative than you wanted, for instance. In the land of video games, this is something that you see refined over the course of the Souls games. The developers of Dark Souls saw that everyone was playing Dark Souls 1 with a sword and shield and kind of turtling and tanking through stuff. And they decided that that was slow and boring and they did everything they could for Dark Souls 2, for Bloodborne, for Dark Souls 3 to just kill that playstyle dead because they hated it. It won't necessarily be something that extreme in every playtest, but sometimes you will design systems that just end up creating a behavior that is not the one that you wanted to. And you have to figure out what you want to do about that, if anything. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's actually also a good point is that, uh, and this brings up my previous point, is that when you do make big changes like that, there are going to be people who liked the way that it played. You know, Dark Souls is one. Another one that I remember seeing a lot of when it started updating a whole lot was... Uh, uh, no Man's Sky. Some people really liked the launch No Man's Sky, which was a very sort of like solitary and uh, contemplative experience. And then when No Man's Sky started putting a lot more stuff in the game and, and, and you know, 
doing a lot more with like other players and that kind of stuff, they kind of felt that they liked that almost meditative gameplay loop of, you know, wandering around and looking at things. And again, a big part that you'll learn doing game design and doing play test is sort of how to thread that needle or when to say, hey, you know what? Some people aren't going to like this and that's okay. So that actually brings me to something I wanted to talk about because I had this conversation. I think you were present for it, Kat, and it, it may have just been myself and Bill, but Bill is usually a, a fair critic anytime I propose an idea. He always asks me a question anytime I mention something that I want to add to the game offhand. He always asks me a hard question about what I expect from people based on that decision. And one of the early questions he asked me when I started talking about the way that I wanted the mechanics to work was uh, specifically, I, I've i designed the system such that it's very friendly for players who lean heavily into um, being creative and kind of like uh, self-motivating and moving their characters along and, and kind of deciding factors about their characters for themselves separately from what the game tells them that their character is. And he asked me, is this game going to be friendly for people who have never played a tabletop RPG before? Is it something that is going to work for people who have literally never played a Dungeons and Dragons? And I was hard pressed to answer at first. And eventually the conclusion I came to was probably not. And I had to make the choice that that was okay, that it was a decision in selecting who the audience of the game was going to be, or at least who it was targeting, and being okay with not pleasing everyone because it's just not possible and just kind of selectively choosing who is it for. Yeah. Funny enough, that's how Kirsten got involved. Um, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I got my start in TTRPG design when a friend in college approached me for help playtesting their game. And I got so into it. I got so excited that I eventually ended up designing stuff for the game and we ended up becoming a design team. But we brought Kirsten aboard and another friend of ours, actually, because they had virtually no experience with TTRPGs at the time. And we ended up forging Kirsten into someone with a lot of TTRPG experience <laughs> over the course of the process. But uh, at the beginning, our plan was we're going to bring on somebody who knows which end of a dice has the numbers on it. And that's about it. And see how well they're capable of navigating this system. Of course, I don't think we understood playtesting well enough at the time to to really just kind of leave her to her own devices <laughs> and see what happened, which was what we should have done as playtesters, but we were new to the process. But like, if you want your game to be accessible to people who don't have a lot of background in TTRPGs, make sure you bring new people in on your playtesting phase. Um. That's absolutely an important question to ask early on in the process is whether or not you want that to be the case. Relatedly, in college, when I was studying music composition, the question of audience came up a lot. There was a really active conversation in classical music at the time about like, okay, 
you are writing what uh, we are calling art music. Who is it for? Is it for people like you who are just giant like music nerds who have heard like all of this other stuff and know what you are building on and what you are doing? Or are you trying to be part of a different conversation? And that alone can shape the thing that a piece of art does so much. And Kat and Nick also having been like writers and artists, I'm sure have experienced similar questions. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. I'm narcissistic enough that my audience is always me. <laughs> and that's a legit answer. That's a legit answer. Like... The music I write for Sword of Symphonies is very much driven by this is the sort of things that I want to write for it. And that can be how it is sometimes. But if you are working for a client or if you are trying to make a commercial product, then the answer can't necessarily be I am making it entirely for me. It's interesting that you meant you kind of speak in those terms. So like this has been a interesting challenge for me because I love games and I've always loved in general design when it comes to games, the mechanical side of it and just the conceptual side of it is very fascinating. And in a different world where I was a better student, I might've actually gone to college and then spent uh, effort and time I, I didn't have trying to go into game design. But I also had a background as a visual artist, but very specifically when I did art, it was from the perspective of this is for me, only me, never anyone but me. And I was kind of creating things from the standpoint of being not standoffish, but I made a lot of stuff that was kind of abstract and strange because it's just what felt good to make and trying to make a thing that the entire purpose of it is that someone else engages with it. You can't approach it from that angle because it's contrary to the whole point of it being a game. I'm having to learn how to appreciate criticism in a different context now. And I'm excited to kind of learn how to actually implement it for once in my life. That's something that I have also like, when I guess this was a lot of doing a lot of work that I did with Kat and with Kathleen and that kind of stuff. And even projects that I've done with other people is learning to really like playtesting isn't actually that hard. Because you're going to find very quickly that when you actually do even a little bit of playtesting, you're going to notice extremely large jumps in quality almost immediately. Again, assuming you have, or I should say, assuming you do not have a tremendously large ego, you are going to love the fact that as you work with other people and as you go through this game of yours and, and you bounce ideas off of people... They get better real fast, and it's super cool to see that improvement like happen after every session or after every like game or whatever. You're going to see a whole bunch of things that people are going to bring up, and sometimes it won't even be like, this should be better, but it feels like it should do this instead, and you're like, oh, I didn't think of that, but I like it better. And learning how to pick that sort of thing out of just the general, this is too strong, this is too weak, this isn't really where I'm going. That's the delicious nougaty center of the editing that is playtesting. And I personally think that most people are going to find that really quickly because I think most people want to do, or at least anybody who gets to the point of playtesting a game of theirs or playtesting anything, they're going to want to make it better. And you're going to really appreciate seeing it get a lot better really quickly. 
granted, it is also one of those things where you will get to the point where it is just a lot of like fine tuning. But by the time that you hit the really fine tuning point, I think you'll be invested enough that it's not going to be as big of a deal. Yeah, it's there's a lot of different things in game. What is game if not a collection of many things? <laughs> um, and game have levels. Okay, I can do this. Give me a second. Your gain also has levels. <laughs> Your gain has levels. Sorry. That was needlessly hostile of me. Needlessly hostile. But like... Sometimes you'll be playing the game and you'll be like, okay, the way this campaign is going, the vibe is wrong. The vibe is not the vibe I wanted this game to have. What in the systems is causing this vibe shift? And sometimes it'll be like, I don't like running combat. I It is boring and, or like it is stressful or it is hard to balance. What can I do about that? And then sometimes it'll be like, oh, every time a player uses this ability, they ask me this question. Maybe I should reconsider the templating. And all of these things kind of happen simultaneously if you're, I guess, if you're not careful. One important thing to do with playtesting is always be, okay, where am I right now? Am I trying to see if the game plays the way I want it to? Am I trying to fine tune it? Am I trying to reevaluate systems? Having a clear idea of what your goal is makes playtesting a lot more effective. Because there's a lot of things. <laughs> that brings me to a question I just want to ask uh, broadly, because I think it, we very briefly touched on it earlier, is what is your personal stance and what do you think is kind of like the best practice for holding people's hand through experiencing your game during playtesting versus leaving them to the wolves, so to speak? I can assume without having done it before that it's probably best to allow them to experience the game as hands-off as possible from your end so that you can really get a true understanding of how well is it written, how understandable it is. But I could also see that being a roadblock from getting to some deeper, meatier mechanical things if you don't kind of walk them through to get to those parts to get a feel for how some of those deeper things are working. Yeah, there's definitely a training wheels sort of stage that you'll want to go through where like the first couple of times that you show people, you should be there to let them know how things function just because it's a lot faster to teach somebody a game if you are there and you can just tell them because, you know, early on, you don't want to like, you don't want to do a bunch of like editing, editing for templating and that kind of stuff. You want to just be like, hey, here's how you play the game. What do you think of what the game is doing? What do you think about the feel? That sort of thing. But you know, you can't be there forever, so you do want to move away from the sort of uh, curated experience over into, you know, here's what I've got, here's what I think is really cool about it, and then you see what people do with it, because when you get it to a point where people can play it on their own without your, I guess, intervention or whatever you want to call it, then you'll start to see, like, the actual, like, bits and bobs show up that you yourself can't predict. Yeah. Whether or not someone can understand your game without you being there to explain it to them is like 90% a matter of templating, which is something that can be fine-tuned later in the process. Like, templating is small potatoes compared to the overall systems. So, testing for whether the game is understandable without you is something that can be saved for once you've got the core systems pretty much solid. It's not something you need to worry about right out the gate. Yeah, you'll hit the QA portion eventually, but you will need to hit the QA portion. 
if you don't, then things are going to crop up that, again, that you didn't see that maybe the couple of people who you've been working with, you know, didn't see because you said, oh, well, it's supposed to be like this, but it could have been interpreted in another way. And they're like, oh, okay, well, I see how it is. But I guess the sort of TLDR for a lot of this is playtesting is the art of fine tuning. It's like carving an ice sculpture with a chainsaw. You eventually need to put the chainsaw down and go over to the ice pick, but it's all essentially the same thing. Just, you know, how big a chunk are you going to be taking out of it? After the ice pick, maybe you want a butane torch for a special effect, but you definitely wouldn't start there. That would take forever. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I get, I, I'm starting to understand. Um, <laughs> so let me see if there's anything I can kind of like rack my brain for from my actual, I'm, I'm going to actually take a peek at my rules and see if there's anything that like strikes too out to me as something to, to ask about. I, um, I just wanted to use an analogy with a chainsaw in it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is partially a, just a broader game design question, but it does have roots in playtesting because it's about player experience. So I would just like to know everyone's thoughts, musings on creating games that range in complexity and specifically like resource management and um, care uh, putting a certain responsibility on the players to be aware of, you know, from a small amount of information to a large amount of information regarding their character and mechanics and your experiences, either play testing as a player or GM on either side of that. Mm. I think the big one there for me is because I love a ton of different kinds of games, everything from, you know, like, look, I played a lot of solitaire and I like Solitaire, but I've also played, <laughs> you know, Terraforming Mars and Twilight Imperium and fighting games and all that kind of stuff. But there is an expectation that you need to get across to your players that, you know, if, say we're doing, you know, we're talking about a tabletop RPG. So the expectation for tabletop RPGs is usually there's dice and there's character sheets. But say, for instance, the expectation of a character who knows, you know, even the vaguest thing about, say, Dungeons & Dragons, to use the big one, is that there's probably a lot more bookkeeping if you're the wizard than if you're the fighter. It doesn't necessarily have to be like that, but if you're going to make a character class or game mechanic, if a player is expecting it to be kind of, you know, involved or crunchy or bookkeepy, you can get away with a lot. You know, like if, for example... Mm -hmm. Say we design a game that's a post-apocalyptic game about survival. People are going to be a lot more open to keeping track of things like water or gear or bullets or anything like that. Whereas if you're playing a D&D &D game and the, you know, you're spending most of your time like kicking doors down and punching goblins and the DM is asking you to keep track of individual arrows, you're probably going to have a problem with that. When was the last time you tracked your spell components in Dungeon Dragon? Nobody does it. Like, take a look at any OSR mech game. They're ridiculously complicated. Like, if you've ever read Lancer and think, wow, this is complex. Oh, wow. Have, have you never plumbed the depths of mech games? They're all like that. And Lancer is actually extremely gentle. But that's okay. And Lancer also just has a great, great companion website to it. Oh, yeah. yeah. CompCon's beautiful. But complexity, like, there are people who love it. There are people who absolutely love it. And there's an audience for all those old OSR mech games. 
Same as there is for Lancer. They're just different people. Oh, I mean, like my favorite games are rules light games, but I also have a deep abiding love for Battletech. Do I recommend anyone else play Battletech? Not generally, but <laughs> that's one of the like joys of the thing is like thinking about all of the terrible line of sight rules and cover and all of tracking all of the damage locations of all of your robots and all of the ranges and all of the complexities of all of the systems. Yeah. So long story short, some players love being asked to keep track of lots of stuff. Okay. Some nerds just like homework. (laughs) (laughs) So I have what in my mind is like the question when it comes to playtesting and maybe you don't necessarily disagree, but this is kind of the one that seems big to me is when it's, The question of, I've been sitting on this idea and working on it, and how much is too much time to spend fiddling with it before just handing it to another human being and letting them play it? Because I feel like that's a pitfall in in any art form is the, the agonizing over quality and therefore never actually surmounting the hurdle of finishing it or putting it in the hands of another person. Mm. I think... As far as I'm concerned, as soon as you've got kind of your core resolution mechanic and enough of your character builder that people can build characters, do it. Just like as soon as those two systems are online, you're ready to go. You can build the rest as you go. Yeah, I I agree with Kat on that one in the sense that the sooner that you can get people, like again, if we're going to talk about our tabletop RPGs, the faster you can get a character to the point where you want the average character to start. So if we are going to use a, an old school level-based system, as soon as you can get level one characters out the door and fighting whatever it is they're going to fight or, you know, going to huge parties or, you know, getting into teen drama, whatever the system is that you're aiming for, as soon as you can get those level one characters out the door, You should just start because, again, it's one of those things where I think you will increase your quality level and you will hone in more on what you think the game is and is fun about the game so much faster if you have friends helping. Plus, character creation and conflict resolution are load-bearing systems. If you decide that anything is wrong with those, it's faster to fix them before everything else is in place than it is later on. If you've got an entire game, if you've got a manual ready for print and then you decide, oh, no, my core resolution mechanic doesn't work the way I wanted it to. Who boy, are you in a world of hurt? Yes, you are. As somebody who is completely rewriting the core resolution mechanic for their game. Yeah. Yeah, you are. But yeah, as soon as you have core resolution, as soon as you have, again, whatever the main thing that the players are going to do is. So if it's some sort of social interaction, if it's dungeon fighting, if it's whatever, As soon as you can get that out the door, then yeah, go for it. Maybe you want to have other really cool things in your game. Maybe in your dungeon crawling game, you want to have a really cool and complex alchemy system where you can make all sorts of fun potions. Great. You don't need that to start with, though. And maybe when you play test it, maybe people are like, oh, it'd be cool if I could do this. Or maybe people are like, hey, I don't care about crafting things. I think what the game does when it comes to goblin punching is where it's at. Mm. And that's something that you can take a look at and say, okay, well, do I really need this 
other system when nobody actually really wants it and people really like they really like the game without it. Well, and this isn't the sort of game that you're making, Dylan, but there are games that I love that are literally just resolution mechanics. Yep. Like I, when I am talking about RPGs, will mention Ghost Echo approximately once per hour, and this is when I'm doing it. There it is. Ding, ding, ding. Ghost Echo <laughs> is just a set of resolution mechanics. Honey Heist is just a set of resolution mechanics. Yeah, same with uh, lasers and feelings and all that all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I love these games because... I tend to polarize either on the all-fluff side or the all-crunch side, so sometimes all you need is the resolution mechanic. So I've reached a point where I think I've asked all the good questions I can think to ask. I've tried to be as uh, as broad and, and openly applicable to as, as many different types of games as possible in, in what I've been asking, so thank you, first and foremost. Like That's actually, a lot of that is incredibly helpful and informative oh, for great. me. Because short of asking literal mechanical questions at this point, I think I've got the heart of what I really, truly wanted to know about playtesting out of this. Which is to say, knowing that all I really have left to do with my game is run it. Yeah. Do you have character gen up and running? Sure do. You could always ask us to make some characters. We'd love to. Mm -hmm. We love playtesting. Yeah, if your care gen is not as involved as Exalted or Shadowrun, I'm there. <laughs> it's 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 very much not. You pick five things at most. That is great. So I guess it's time for me to say, hey, listener, I hope we answered your questions about playtesting. But if we didn't? Oh, goodness. What if we didn't? What if we didn't? Yeah, what if they have more questions? Well, if you have more questions about playtesting, say about stories from the playtesting of Heroic Chord or Mod back in the day or Nick's game about sheeps and bugs, I guess, but mostly the sheeps, you can hit us up on Twitter at PeachGardenRPGs or you can visit our website, PeachGardenGames.com and there's a little form you can fill out that sends an email to me, Kat, and I will answer your questions to the best of my abilities. Yeah. What about if you have questions for Dylan? Yeah, what if you have questions for Dylan about their cool new game? Where they, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, if you have questions about my game, that would be a weird thing for you to have. But if you do, I'm not going to tell you no. You can find me on Twitter at lasers with a Z underscore forever. And you can also find the official Twitter for our streaming and podcasting tabletop stuff, TFTT, at, a, at TFTT underscore presents, where any actual official news about the game will be found. I'm going to be playing it. We're going to do a campaign. It'll be great. Tune in, everybody. Sure are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bye, Bye, everybody. Catch you next time. Bye-bye. Be gay. Roll Dice! An LGBTQIA actual play podcast network. Charlotte? Charlotte, honey. No one but me can understand you.
Let me take over. Ads are supposed to be short. Oh. I, I know, but maybe next time? Okay. Sam, Jack, Ark, and Eden didn't really walk in the same social circles before their unexpected trip to Oz, but such a journey binds people together. They thought that was the end of their adventures, but there's a haunted hospital to explore and a new world pulling them away from home. Will they ever be normal teenagers again? Were they ever normal teenagers in the first place? The Games Afoot uploads the last Sunday of every month, and we hope to see you there. Woo-hoo.